0: Good day, dear listeners. Steve Prida here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And today my guest is Abhishek Nayak, CEO and founder of AppSmith, the first open source low-code platform that helps businesses
1: build any custom internal application within hours. Abhishek, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much for having me uh, on your show, and I'm excited to talk to you.
0: Oh, Of course. I'm very curious about some of the stuff that you guys are doing at AppSmith. Uh, But let's start with your journey. How did you come up with this idea of of AppSmith and what were you doing before and uh, how did you get here? Uh,
1: Sounds good. Uh, So AppSmith is my third startup. I've been an entrepreneur uh, for the better part of the previous decade and every single startup that I did, which is always uh, with Arpit, who's my co-founder and CTO at AppSmith, we've always had to build some sort of custom applications to, for example, to run customer support. I also did a gaming startup just before AppSmith, uh, which was a consumer startup. There we had to build things to manage user data, game levels, design game levels, etc. So in my previous startups, which have ranged from to be in the payment space, they were also in the gaming space. My co-founder Arpit, he was always responsible for building like a custom tool. Uh, to do customer support or to run operations. and That's where the idea for AppSmith emerged. We realized we're doing a lot of repetitive work in every single startup. It's the same interfaces. You need to display some charts, maybe some data in a table, show a form so that you can modify some data. Or maybe you have a workflow. Uh, Let's say you're a FinTech startup or a payment startup, and you have a customer onboarding workflow and you need to build an onboarding workflow, which is custom for your business. We realized all of these tools, they have something that is common and some things that are customized. So we decided to put all those common features together in a low-code open source platform so that people don't have to build things from scratch. And that basically is uh, is AppSmith. The idea of AppSmith originated from scratching my co-founder's itch because my co-founder was the person who was always in charge of building this. And he realized he doesn't want to build stuff from scratch all the time. Uh, and we should build something that helps other engineers build on top of a framework that does a lot of heavy lifting for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's sort of how is how we landed up on uh, uh, on Appsmith.
0: That's very interesting. So, so these modules that you're talking about that you're building, have they not been available before? I, I was under the impression that. Uh, that most of the new softwares that are being built are being modularly uh, constructed rather than from scratch?
1: Uh, So It depends on what kind of modularization and how much effort it still takes. For example, if you need to just show some data on a chart, you need to connect to an API, maybe you need to create an API in the first place, then you need to connect to that API, then you need to write the code for the charting library that you use, You might be using a charting library, so you're not writing every chart from scratch, but you then need to figure out how to transform the data so that you can use this particular charting library, Uh, or if you need to create a form, you need to write the logic for the form. So I would say in this process, maybe about 15 to 20% is modularized. You're not doing everything from scratch, but 80% of the work is definitely not modularized. It does take a lot of effort. And those are the bits that we are trying to convert in AppSmith so that you're only doing 20% of the work and 80% of the work is done out of the box for you. So it's just different level of modularization and different level of automation for the developer. So
0: if in the past or if currently Someone builds a new software. Twenty percent of them of the modules or of the components are available off the shelf, and now you're going to take this twenty percent to eighty percent, so that people Mm -hmm. will just have to do the twenty percent customized or coded. That is very exciting. That is very exciting.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So, uh, so you already this is already your third or fourth startup. So, when you create a startup, how do you find product market And what are the ingredients that go into finding product market fits? And you talked about this as a framework that you have developed. So can you explain how that works and how do you approach uh, new startups?
1: Uh, So the the first thing I look for in a new startup idea is, uh, am I somebody who understands the customer really well? Or am I somebody who understands the problem really well? Maybe I'm not a customer of it, but maybe I understand the problem really well. Or I'm the customer of it. So that's the first thing. I strongly think you should solve problems that you're fully aware of and not try to do something because it's a cool idea or a cool market. Uh, But once you've crossed that hurdle, then I work on a, I use a framework, which I call as unique, useful, and remarkable. Uh, And I'm looking at the fact, is this idea unique? Uh, Does something like this exist in the market already? If it does exist in the market, are people aware of it? Sometimes you have unique ideas which nobody's aware of, and therefore you still have the chance to be unique because people aren't aware of it. But in other cases, your idea is not unique at all. Customers are so used to using similar products or solving similar problems that they're not excited by this. So The first thing I would look for is, is your idea unique or not? And then I would look at the second one, is it useful? Does it do something for the customer? Because I do believe there are a lot of ideas which start out as unique and only over time become useful. But if you're unique, you do have a chance of breaking out of the noise and standing out for a customer and therefore you might find a customer using you, even though you might not be that useful. So the second step for me would be turn it into something that's actually useful and is either solving a pain point or is doing something in a way that is saving the customer money. One of those two things, either it should be making money, solving a problem or saving the customer money. That's the useful bit. And the third bit is remarkable, which is the way you execute on your idea. It has to be remarkable that people talk about it, that your happy customers. Go on and tell other customers about it or other potential customers about this. Today, a lot of products are not remarkable. They might be unique. They might be solving something that's really critical, but you just don't talk about it because Mm -hmm. it's not remarkable or exciting to you. Mm And that's where a lot of your growth becomes completely dwarfed because the word is just not spreading about what you're building.
0: Yeah, it it has to be exciting enough so that it uh, becomes uh, viral, goes viral, basically, is what you're saying. So so let's dissect this a little bit. How do you know if something is unique? So you, you have an idea. Is there a way to check whether this has not been done before?
1: I think so. Now, the answer might not be fully objective. But if you're somebody who understands the problem space, or you're somebody who understands the other options available in the market, it's easy for you to identify if something is unique or not, and you obviously test it by pitching it to a customer. And you begin to look for their expressions, their words that they say, or their facial expressions, whatever you might have as a signal. All of that works to tell you if it's unique or not. The biggest problem arises when you enter a market that you have no idea about, where you just don't understand what the current state of the market is, what are customers already buying, Mm -hmm. what is their unhappiness or what is their excitement about the current state of competitors. If you don't know that, you just cannot build something unique. So I do believe you have to be embedded in that environment and you have to spend enough time for you to understand if this is unique or not. And that's something that's, that's really hard for you to understand if you're not embedded in the market. Uh, I see a lot of, especially a lot of uh, young MBA grads entering markets just because it's big or maybe because they saw somebody else makes a lot of money in it. Now, because they have no idea about what customers are already buying and they don't understand the customer persona really well, you can't make something that's unique. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of ideas stumble.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's no uh, shortcut for experience and for knowledge. So you're better off digging into a market and then try to come up with something rather than the other way around,
1: is what you're saying? And sometimes there might be a shortcut. You know, the shortcut might be a specific experience that you went through. Uh, Maybe that experience lasted for, you know, just a couple of days. Maybe you had an incredible uh, experience, you know, in a foreign country, or maybe you had an incredible experience with a particular way by which somebody was selling you something and you realize hey this can be applied somewhere else Mm -hmm. so i do believe there's you know there's that cross-pollination there's the cross connection of ideas that emerge and with all of this there is a possibility of for you to provide a unique spin to something
0: Mm -hmm. so either you are embedded in an area where which you really understand and then you you realize something is missing or you stumble upon you have an experience and you think maybe This has not been solved and they have to do a research. And maybe you, you know, you do a focus group in that industry and try to see if other people have not seen something like that. And then you can zone in, hone in on the uniqueness of it. Now, what about remarkable? So is there a process to make a product, a digital product or a software uh, product remarkable, or is it more an art than science?
1: Uh, Again, this is a mix of art and science. The science bit is definitely a lot simpler to talk about. You do something remarkable when customers have not experienced Mm -hmm. that before. It could be amazing customer service, Mm -hmm. or it could be the ease of buying something. It could be the ease of using something. But every single thing that we experience today, there's something that's lacking in that experience, which prevents us from talking about it. And sometimes it's just solving for one thing that that provides a very remarkable experience to customers and to developers. Uh, So in AppSmith's case, for example, one of the biggest reasons why we get word of mouth virality is because... One, we are open source. Second, our customer support is great. It's both of these things together. There are a lot of open source projects which, uh, you know, which see a lot of activity, but they don't get support quickly enough. Then on the other hand, you have a lot of small open source projects that are able to provide great customer support, but you know they're not that popular. In case of AppSmith, uh, we have both working for us, which is it's an open source project that's popular, but we also provide incredibly good developer support through our documentation, through our videos, through our uh, uh, community forums, but all of this together in the early days, it was a little bit slow. People didn't see this as remarkable. But today, uh, you know, two out of five conversations that I have, people tell us how they were blown away with the velocity of responses that they got and the amount of material that is out there to use Appsmith, mm-hmm. and that to them was remarkable. So, and that's what they talk about when they tell their friends about it. So that's something that we noticed. And providing great support sounds like a simple thing, but doing it at scale is extremely complicated and quite cumbersome. Uh, So we've spent a lot of time figuring that out, uh, Mm -hmm. and that is now becoming a remarkable uh, feature for AppSmith.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, that's uh, that's interesting. So let's talk about this idea of open source and uh, the business model of open source. So how does it
1: work? How do you create an open source business model, and how do you monetize it? So open source, by definition, means that your software source code is available to anybody and they can do whatever they want with it. If they want, they can modify it. If they want, they can resell it. Uh, If they want, they can put on their own logo on it and uh, go on and start a whole different company around it. So uh, the core concept of open source is that the source is available to developers to modify and change. And uh, so in case of AppSmith, our core project is open source, which means anybody can take it and do something with it. This also means that customers or potential customers, they don't have an incentive to pay AppSmith any money. Now, the way we tackle that is by ensuring that we have certain set of features that are only available in our enterprise edition, which only matter to a very large organization. So we believe uh, you 80-85% know, of our users will never pay us money, and that's completely fine. But anywhere from 5% to maybe like 10% of our users, they do have features and they do have needs that cannot be addressed by the open source project. And that's what we charge them for. Uh, these are things like security-related features. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are features around reliability, around scalability, or these could even be custom support because they're a very large company, they need support SLAs, which we cannot provide in our community edition. We then provide that for a fee. So traditionally open source organizations, they monetize through a couple of ways. The first method is by providing support. Now that's something we do at AppSmith, but not a lot of it. The second thing that they might do is provide a hosted service, where they charge you for the cloud hosted edition of their open source service. This is something that we don't do at AppSmith, Uh, at least not yet, but I know a lot of open source projects, they do charge for hosting. The third thing that is common is to provide enterprise features which are not available in the open source edition. This is how GitLab monetizes it and this is how AppSmith also monetizes most of our customers.
0: So does it mean that there's a very long period of incubation when the business is not making money because you have to build up or that uh, essentially the audience? And they have to start using it and it's going to take some time to get it to the enterprise level and for them to need these extra services. How do you fund that? It sounds like it's impossible to uh, to bootstrap a business like that.
1: So it, it really depends on uh, on how quickly your open source project takes off. In a lot of open source projects case, it does require a lot of incubation time. That's why open source projects generally start off with one or two engineers who work on it part-time for six months, maybe a couple of years, and only after that, they go in full-time. Once there is a sizable mass of users that are using it. And in case of AppSmith, it did take us a whole year before we could launch the project. And our first enterprise feature request, it came in about six months after we had launched the project. So for us, uh, that was relatively quicker, but I do know for a lot of companies, it does take a long time. And even in AppSmith's case, it did take us a good one and a half years after launching the project to make the first revenue. Uh, and in our case, we were funded uh, by our seed stage investors. So we were, uh, you know, we could actually continue doing it for a little bit longer. And that's how we funded it. But in other cases, I do know people do it part-time as an engineer, or people self-funded through providing a support contract or by providing consulting services on top of it.
0: Mm-hmm interesting now what's uh, really unique about this product is that you're selling it to the engineers themselves who are doing the programming and the coding are they difficult the buyers to please and uh, how do you uh, how is it different to sell something to an engineer rather than a business owner or or a c level c suite executive
1: so there are a couple of things which make it easy to sell to developers then there are a couple of things which make it incredibly hard to sell to developers let me cover the bits that make get easy to sell to developers. Number one, developers are online all the time and they will research every single thing about your product before they come to you and ask you for help. Developers love to do things on their own uh, for as much as possible without talking to a user, Uh, rather without talking to a support person or to a salesperson. This I love about developers because every time I do a sales call with an engineering team, they're very well informed about AppSmith, and they understand how it works, and they would have spent a couple of hours on it before we have a conversation with them. That's the first thing. The second thing is developers are always open to trying out a new product because every single day their job depends on innovation and their job depends on doing something different that they weren't doing, let's say, a year ago. Mm-hmm. So they're always looking for a new tool, a new library. If not all the developers, at least maybe like 15 to 20% of the developers, they're always looking for a new tool. So it's very possible for you to put a new product in front of them and get them to try it and give you feedback about it. Mm-hmm. Because they're always looking for something new and they're always trying to save time. And so that's the second thing that's easy. The third thing that's uh, that I really like about developers is that they're willing to wear your brand you know on their body they'll happily wear a free t-shirt because they like the t-shirt or because you know they like your product and i love that because it's like free marketing for your product and developers are some of the highest paid people in the world and they're willing to wear a free t-shirt you know that's a silly small thing but i love the fact that they're so happy to use other people's swag so that's something that i really like the thing that makes it hard to sell to developers number 1 uh, they have a very high bar for quality. They might try your product, but if the quality isn't that high, they're going to throw the product away very, very quickly. Even if they've spent a couple of hours on it, they're not willing to invest more than that mm-hmm. uh, just because they, they have a higher bar for quality. So that's number one. Uh, the second thing is when they need help, they expect sophisticated help. And they expect help which is above and beyond like an average customer support person. So the kind of support that they expect generally is expected from other engineers. So supporting a a developer who's been using your product for a long time is quite expensive because you need to have a very sharp engineer supporting that developer. Uh, And you cannot, uh, you know, it's not a low-cost service that you can provide to them. So that's the second thing that makes it really hard. Uh, The third thing that makes it really hard to sell to them is for you to charge them, you need to be providing something that they cannot already do for free. Mm-hmm. Because if there is a way for them to achieve something for free and the there isn't that much time-related cost associated with it, they are going to go find that free service. They're not necessarily going to go pay for it uh, mm-hmm. just because it's a lot more convenient. You know They don't tend to do that. So you need to be able to provide something which they cannot get anywhere else. Uh, and only then they're they're willing to pay you, so interesting.
0: Yeah. So very high maintenance, uh, but well-informed customers. The uh, develops developers are that's fascinating. So uh, so switching gears here a little bit. So your business is completely remote. You you explained to me you have over hundred employees. Some of your employees are in twenty different countries. You never meet in person. So how do you create and maintain uh, and develop a culture when it's completely remote and people never see each other.
1: Uh, so our team is about 120 people today. And uh, last week, actually, we did an offsite where there were about 90 people. So that was the first time we all got together yeah. uh, for a few days and met each other face to face. But majority of the time, yes, we've never met each other and we do all our work remotely. Uh, for you to run a remote organization as a uh, you know as a leader, you have to have multiple processes in place. But you also need to ensure there's a lot of flexibility and freedom available to your team. So, and that's why there's a balancing act where you need to have some clear rules and some principles in place. But you also need to ensure that there is flexibility around those rules, so that people can take decisions for themselves when they run into a conflict or when they run into a, a hypo, you know, like a since uh, a situation where. Uh, there are multiple right answers. They should have the principles in their mind so that they can take the right decision. Mm -hmm. And these principles, they need to be communicated in the written form repeatedly, which leads to the second management principle as a leader. You have to write down everything that is essential and important. You cannot depend on one-way communication which is broadcasted through a visual medium. It has to be written down and people should be able to read it without attending a call with you. If you do not write it down, then it's not important to your organization. Versus if you do write it down, it means you can use that as the way of spreading knowledge and as the way of spreading the principles and beliefs that you have. Uh, So I personally uh, communicate everything in open and I communicate using Notion Docs or using Slack. If it's important, then it is done using Notion Slack and a video call, but it is rarely done only through a video call. Uh, Because if it's a video call, some people might miss it, other people might skip over or skim over the recording and therefore they miss the important points. Therefore I use a written document as well as a video to communicate things. Now this is about how I communicate as a leader. Now for the rest of the organization, you need to have people who are proactive communicators and people who ask for help And people who write really well. If you don't have people who proactively communicate or proactively ask for help, it's really difficult for you to run a remote organization. So you have to keep repeating this point, and you also have to train your team a little bit, expose them to resources, expose them to uh, training material which tells them how to write better, how to communicate better. And all of this leads to. A much smoother functioning of a remote organization.
0: That's uh, very interesting the way you explain it because I always thought that people don't always read things. So, one of the reasons why speaking is more effective is that people are more likely to absorb something when it comes from a person who is speaking to them rather than when it's just the quote letters and a piece of paper. I guessed on this podcast uh, a couple of uh, weeks uh, ago who talked about how writing is not a natural way to communicate and writing and reading. So it, it surprises me that for you, it's very effective. Maybe is this because of the developers are more apt to reading stuff or maybe you have more introverted employees who are um, maybe the, the engineer brain that you are very precise and you're looking for the exact meaning of things. Do you think this is something to do with that?
1: I don't think so because at the very start, we did have a problem with this, which is because we were moving from a meeting culture to a written culture, mm-hmm. uh, to a, a you know documentation-first culture. And it was really painful for us to get people to read everything. Then we realized it does require discipline in how you communicate it. And you have to keep reinforcing the fact that everything is available in the written medium. And uh, also sometimes in our meetings, we do give time to people to read a document at the very start of the meeting. And only then we continue uh, with the meeting before this. So it's a bunch of different ways. I wouldn't say we fully solved it, but after having used the written medium uh, a lot more in the last two years versus in the last you know seven, eight years before that, I always used to do meetings and I, or it used to be on video calls. I do believe the written medium is better to provide clarity. It's not the best medium for you to have a discussion Mm -hmm. that I completely agree for a discussion or a brainstorming session. It still makes sense for you to do it synchronously, but the written medium is great for you to communicate ideas with clarity and communicate ideas with conviction because it's a low fidelity method of communication versus Mm -hmm. the video call. So you're forced to focus on the most essential points. And you're forced to focus on refining your arguments in a way that makes sense.
0: I like that concept. So essentially, I think this is why people read books because you cannot write a book by just uh, you know glossing over ideas. You have to be really precise. You have to think through what you're writing, and then it is a much more reliable medium. Uh, in speaking, you can use your charisma, you can use your magnetism, and your other non-verbal communication abilities to to mesmerize the audience and essentially gloss over stuff. So it's it's interesting. So uh, wrapping uh, this conversation up, uh, what can you offer to our listeners and what do you suggest they do after listening to us talk?
1: So I think a couple of things. Uh, The first one would be, if you're thinking about working remotely or hiring remotely, you have to realize that it's a little bit different than you were managing before, and it is very possible to do it. Uh, It's going to be very painful For a leader at the start, but there are real behavioral changes that you need to bring for you to succeed. You cannot expect that translation to happen. But once you start working remotely, you realize the entire world is your oyster. You can hire the very best people at the budget that you have or at the cost that you can afford, and you don't have to compromise there. And that's something that's been incredible. Uh, The second thing I would uh, suggest is just If you're running a growing business and you're struggling to get engineers to build something that is essential for your business, then you should take a look at AppSmith. AppSmith might be able to solve that problem. Send a link to your engineers and uh, they will be able to use it for building something very, very quickly. Something that might have taken you a few months, you'll get it done in a day or two. Uh, And because it's a general purpose tool, you will find some use case for it. And you should definitely try that out.
0: Okay. Well, that's that's, that's a great suggestion. I'm going to do that as well. I have a developer who develops all of my uh, front-end stuff. And uh, I will uh, send it to her and and let her check it out and maybe accelerate things. So, Abhishek, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. Obviously, we'll have your contact information in the show notes um, of this uh, episode. And... uh, you know have a great day and thanks for uh, thanks for sharing your unique knowledge. Thanks, Steve.